0: But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod. And he terrified and afflicted them with tumors both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The Ark of God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us, and against Dagon, our God. So they sent and gathered oh, all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the Ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the Ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the Ark of God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the Ark of God to Akron. But as soon as the Ark of God came to Akron, the people of Akron cried out, They have brought around to us the Ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, send the, the, away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not, not die were struck with tumors and the cry of the city went up to heaven. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what we shall send it to its place. They said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it away empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, What is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered, Five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he would lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? Then we'll skip down to verse 10. The men did so. And took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shot up their calves at home. They put, put, out, put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along uh, one highway, lowing as they went. Now we'll skip down to verse 17. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Escalon, one for Gath, one for Ekron. And the golden mice according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords. Both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day of the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck seventy men of them and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the people of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. The men of Kiriath-Jerim came up and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eliezer to have charge of the ark of the Lord. So when I was growing up, I played hockey from the time I was four years old up until high school. And uh, through that time span, I played uh, travel hockey uh, for most of that time. And I had a number of different coaches during that time span. And the thing about the coaches that I had was most of the coaches that I had were not, they liked hockey, but they weren't that serious about coaching. Uh, Usually it was a father of a player, of of their son was playing on the team. And so they they liked to coach, but they were more interested in being with their son and coaching their son. And as a result, they weren't that intense. They weren't that serious about coaching. Uh, Also being even though it was a travel team everybody had to pay the same amount for ice time and so ice time was relatively equal. There would be like three lines and you just kind of rotate through those lines and maybe if there was a power play or at the end of the game if it was close maybe the better players would go out but more or less everybody was playing a good deal. And that's kind of what I was used to, and then I started playing hockey in high school. I was playing, uh, the school that I had didn't have a hockey team, so I played for a different school. But right at the beginning, I realized that this coach was very different than the other coaches that I had. I remember one player who wasn't very good, who he would only play maybe one shift the entire game. And I remember the first game that I played, I wasn't one of the better players. And I, I, I was ready to go and get into the rotation. And I thought everyone was, he was just going to go and go through the lines. And I remember him telling me, okay, you just sit here. I'll tell you when to go out. And this coach wasn't afraid to get in your face if you weren't working hard. With other coaches, I could kind of lollygag it. You know, at the end of the practice, we'd have to do these lightning drills, these conditioning drills, and if I didn't want to skate hard, I could just kind of go through the motions and maybe shake my arms a little bit and pretend like I was working hard. But if I did that with him, he was on me and was like, okay, get down, do 10 push-ups. Like I said, I went to, uh, the school that I went to didn't have a hockey team, and so I didn't, I wasn't able to go to some practices because I didn't get home on the bus in time. And I was kind of honestly happy about that because I didn't like to practice that much. I told the coach that I wasn't able to come. And he's like, okay, uh, what time do you get out of school? I'll come over there and pick you up. (laughs) So he comes over, picks me up, drives me to practice. And right from the beginning of him being my coach, very early on I started to realize I couldn't get away with much with this coach. And over the three years that I had him as a coach, I came to love him. He was a great coach. But even at the end, even after I had known him for three years, even after I had this great relationship with him, every time he walked into the locker room I was a little bit afraid of what he was going to say or what he was going to do. I was a little bit afraid that he was going to call me out on something that I was doing wrong. So, but I learned that pretty early on, I couldn't get away with much with him. And just like I learned that, we see in this passage that the Philistines learned pretty quickly that they can't get away with much with God. See, in the ancient world, when two countries would come into a conflict with one another, yes, it would be a battle between the men, but it was also seen as kind of a proxy battle between those two nations' gods. And so when they would When they encountered this battle, when the Philistines faced the Israelites, it was basically Dagon, the god of the Philistines, against Yahweh, the god of Israel. And whoever won that battle was the stronger god. At least that's how they saw it in the ancient world. And so the Philistines defeat the Israelites. And they capture the Ark of the Covenant, which was this uh, box that kind of symbolized God's presence, where God's presence dwelt. And they take this and they put it into the ark of their god, Dagon, and they put it beside him. And the implication is very clear. They have conquered Yahweh. They have conquered Israel's god. Now Dagon is the great god that rules over Yahweh, the god of Israel. And and it's seen also by the... The discrepancy, the discrepancy in the sizes between the Ark of the Covenant and the statue of the Dagon. The statue of Dagon is very large. It's as, as it was as tall as the building was wide. The Ark of the Covenant is just a small little box. And so the people, the Philistines, put this Ark of the Covenant by Dagon. And the clear implication is Dagon has conquered Yahweh. So they put the Ark there. Then the next day they come in. The statue, the idol of Dagon is faced out. The clear implication is that he's now worshipping the God of Israel. He's worshipping Yahweh. One scholar says that he's in a position of adoration. And apparently the Philistines don't get it. They don't understand what's happening. Perhaps they think that there was an earthquake or somehow the wind blew over the statue. And so they go and they prop up the statue once again. And the sight is kind of humorous that There's this God, or so-called God, who is greater than the God of Israel, who's brought them this victory, but he can't even stand up himself. But that's what they do. They raise him up, put him back in his place, and then the next morning they come in. Once again, Dagon has fallen down, but this time it's a little bit different. This time when he falls down, his hands are broken off and his head is broken off. So the only thing that's left there is the trunk of his body. Now this is possibly significant for a couple different reasons. First of all, uh, according to one scholar, it was a common wartime practice to collect the heads or hands of the fallen to demonstrate victory. In addition, when a leader defeated another leader, it was said to be because of the power of his hand. The power symbolically resided in the hand. Remember how God led the people of Israel out of Egypt and he led him out with a mighty hand, it says in the scripture, and an outstretched arm. And so we see clearly in this passage that Dagon is completely defeated. He is completely powerless. And in contrast to that, we're told that the hand of Yahweh is strong upon the people of Ashdod. We see in the text that it's causing Illness is to break out tumors to come on the body of the Philistines. They ship it on from Ashdod to Gath. It says that, again, the Lord, hand of the Lord was heavy upon uh, Gath. People start to die. They move it to another city to Akron. Again, there's widespread panic. People die, there's tumors. And finally, the Philistines get together and they realize, we've got to do something about this. We have to get rid of this ark. Because they keep playing hot potato with this Ark of, the, Ark of the Covenant, moving it from place to place, and everywhere it goes, it brings wreaks havoc. And so they call it together, the diviners and the priests of the people of the Philistines. And they say, okay, so how do we get rid of this thing? What's the way, best way to get rid of it so that we minimize the casualties so we don't have to deal with this God anymore? And the priests and the diviners come up with an idea. They realize they've done something bad. They've realized they've insulted the God of Israel. And so they decide they're going to send uh, the ark back and they're going to send with it five golden mice and five golden tumors. Now we know it's five because of the five cities of the Philistines and the five rulers of those cities. We know that there's the tumors because there was tumors that broke out on the people uh, because of, uh, of what God wrought in those cities. The mice is a little bit further, harder to understand. We're not exactly sure what that means, why the mice are there, but it says in the text that the mice ravaged the land. And the name Dagon uh, is believed to come from the word for grain. And he may have been the god of agriculture or the god of... Uh, of the ground and so it's suggested that most likely what is happening here is that the mice are overrunning Dagon's territory that they're in the fields eating all of the produce eating all of the grains once again demonstrating that Dagon is powerless before the God of Israel and so they decide they're gonna send those things back and they have a further plan the plan is that the the priests and the diviners say Put the Ark of the Covenant on a cart and then attach to that Ark of the Covenant two uh, milk cows who have never had a yoke, who have not been away from uh, their calves, and you just send them away. And of course the logical thing that would usually happen is if those uh, cows were sent away they would return home to their calves. But they said if they go to the land of Israel then we'll know for sure that God is the one who caused this. And if not, we'll know it's just a coincidence. I mean, amazing that they could think that all of these things together could be a, possibly a coincidence, but that's what they thought, and so they put the cows on the cart. And it says in the text that they went straight to the land of Bethshemesh, to the land of Israel. They didn't turn to the left or to the right; they came right to the land uh, of Israel. Bethshemesh was this land that was between the fi- land of the Philistines and between Israel. It was occupied by Israel during this time. And it says in the text that when the Ark of the Covenant came to the people of Beth Shemesh, there was rejoicing because the Ark of the Lord had returned to the people of Israel. We see also that the Philistines are rejoicing in a different way. Now they don't have to deal with the Ark of the Covenant. Now they've finally done away with this God and they can go back to their homes in peace. But the rejoicing for the the Israelites is very short-lived. We see in the text it tells us that 70 people from Beth Shemesh looked upon the Ark of the Lord and they were struck dead. Now we don't know for sure exactly what they did. They may have tried to look inside of the Ark of the Covenant which was prohibited or they may have been, the the word for looked upon indicates staring oftentimes and so they may have been staring at it and kind of gloating over that. We're not sure exactly what it was but they were very irreverent in the way they were treating the Ark of the Covenant. And so then they realize we can't have this God among us. We can't have the Ark of the Covenant among us. And so they call another Israelite city. And once again the hot potato game starts again. So they call the people of Kirith Jareem and they say the Philistines have returned this Ark. Now we need you to come and get it because we can't have it here. And they make a very insightful statement. They say... Who is able to stand before this holy God? We see a a lot of humor or irony, uh, dark humor you might call it, in this passage. We see last week we looked at how Eli and Eli's daughter-in-law mourned because the Ark of the Covenant was taken away from Israel. Uh, We looked at how uh, Eli, when he heard the news that the Ark was taken away, he fell backwards and he broke his neck and died. He was so distraught because of this news that the ark of the covenant was taken then we heard about the story about how his daughter-in-law was pregnant with a child had the child when she heard the ark of the covenant was taken and when the child was born she called the child ichabod and she says the glory has departed from israel and so you see all this sadness all of this uh... despair because the ark is gone and then in this passage we see despair because the ark is there the philistines just move it from place to place and then the Israelites start doing the same thing. We also see an irony between, with the Philistines and how they behave. They believe they conquered the God of Israel. They bring this Ark of the Covenant in as a trophy. They think that now they can add Yahweh to their pantheon of gods that would be ruled by Dagon. And then we see seven months later as they've moved it from place to place that they've had to give some precious things, gold, to appease this God, to send it back to be done with this God. And then it seems like the summary or the conclusion of this, uh, the high point of this passage is when the people of Beth Shemesh say who is able to stand before this holy God. So how do we bring this story together? I mean, you might be wondering yourself, so how does an ancient ark, ancient box of wood, golden mice, and golden tumors apply to us in the 21st century. It seems kind of far off. But I think that there's a thread that we see through these chapters and even going back a couple chapters before that I think we can apply to our own lives. And I think there's a thread between three groups of people in these chapters. Remember first Eli's sons back in chapter 2. Remember Eli's sons, they were uh, misappropriating the things of God. The people would bring sacrifices to sacrifice to God, and then they would misappropriate them, use them for their own ends. We also remember that they were uh, sleeping with the people of the temple, and they were doing all these wicked, immoral things. Then we have the Philistines. Philistines, again, take the Ark of the Covenant, think they've conquered the God of Israel, and do, the, you know, do those things. And then three, we have the people of Beth Shemesh who look upon, look into, or somehow treat irreverently the Ark of the Covenant. And so what is the thread that ties all of these three stories together, these three groups of people? I think the thread is that none of these people feared God. None of these people feared God. And they didn't fear God because they didn't know God. It says as much in chapter 2 of 1 Samuel, where it says clearly that Eli's sons, they didn't know the Lord. They, didn't know, uh, they knew about him, but they didn't know the Lord. If, if they did, they wouldn't be doing the things that they did. We see the Philistines, they were pagans. They worshiped false gods. We see clearly they didn't know the Lord. And these people of Beth Shemesh, by their actions, by the way that they treated the Ark of the Lord, clearly they didn't have a fear for the Lord, and clearly they didn't know the Lord. See, I think this passage teaches us something very important, and that is that if we don't fear God, then we don't know God. If we don't fear God, we don't know God. You see, over the last 50 to 100 years, I think that there has been an effort by American Christians to make God more approachable. And so we focus on the love of God, the mercy of God. We describe Jesus as our personal Lord and Savior. We talk about This love relationship that we have with Him in worship songs. We refer to God as our Father. And none of these things are bad things. They are all true things. They are all things to be celebrated. But I think what sometimes happens is that one generation kind of overcorrects another generation. In other words, you know, you have a maybe a child who grew up with very authoritarian parents. Parents wouldn't let them do anything fun and they hate the way that their parents run the household, and then they grow up, and then they overcorrect that to be completely permissive and let the children do whatever they want. And I think the similar thing maybe has happened in regards to American Christianity. I mean, you look back 100 plus years, and maybe there was more emphasis on the holiness of God and the greatness of God and the glory of God, and not as much on the approachability and the love of god. And so then over the last 50 to 100 years we've kind of turned in the opposite direction. I think about a few hundred years ago one of the most famous sermons in American history Jonathan Edwards gave that was called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I can't imagine how that would go over to title a sermon that by that title in today's culture. But there was this focus more on the holiness of god Maybe not as much on the love and the approachability of God. And now I think the pendulum has swung swung so that now we focus on the love and grace of God, which is true, which is to be affirmed. But then sometimes we neglect and we minimize the holiness and the fear of God. When we see the word fear in scripture, what do we say? We say, well, it doesn't really mean fear. We say it means respect. And we do not really to fear God. Now, in a sense, that is true, but I think we take it maybe a little bit too far. And I think sometimes we maybe blunt the word of, words of Scripture to kind of fit our own ends, to fit what we think God should be like. And I truly believe that we maybe need a little bit more fear in our culture. Now, you might say, well, Americans are very fearful people. Nearly all Americans deal with fear or anxiety to some extent. But what are the things that we're afraid of? We're afraid of losing our job. We're afraid that our loved ones will get sick. We're afraid we won't have enough to pay the bills. We're afraid our spouse will leave us. We're afraid of how our kids will turn out. I mean, how many people would would say to themselves, one of the concerns of my life is, I want to make sure I don't get to the end of my life, and I've looked at all the things that I've done, and Jesus says, you've wasted your life. How many people are not terrified about that, but have a concern, a a healthy fear that we want to be on the right path and doing what God has called us to do. But the thing is, when we get that right, if we fear God, those other things are not so scary anymore. Oswald Chambers once said this, the remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. Proverbs 9, verse 10 says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So what are we talking about when we're talking about fearing God? Are we saying that we should live our lives in terror? That we should always be kind of second-guessing where we stand with God? Questioning His love for us? Questioning whether we're saved and going to go to heaven? I don't think that's true at all. I think the scriptures give us ample evidence to believe that we can have an assurance and know that God loves us, that God cares for us, that he's there for us. And we can have the assurance of knowing that we'll spend forever forever in heaven because it's not based on our own efforts, it's based on the work of Christ and we simply receive that gift. So we can have that assurance and First John says that perfect love casts out fear so we don't need to be afraid in that sense that God is going to cast us off if we're in Christ. We can have that assurance but in what sense are we to fear God? We fear God because we know how great he is. We know what he's capable of. I grew up uh, in a Christian household. My parents, uh, honestly, they're best parents I could ever ask for Um, wonderful parents the thing about when I was growing up though was that my dad was the primary disciplinarian and uh, my mother was no by no means a pushover but I had this respect might even say fear of my dad that I didn't necessarily have for my mother I mean if I was we were out somewhere and I was thinking about doing something wrong if I did something wrong and my mother caught me, I felt like there was a little bit of leeway that maybe I could negotiate the punishment down or maybe even negotiate my way out of it. But when my dad was there, I was like, I better not mess around because I knew that there was an immediate consequence. There were no second and third and fourth chances. There was a consequence if I broke the rules, if I did something wrong. Now I knew. That my dad loved me so much. That's the reason he disciplined me. And I know that he would do anything for me. Literally anything. But there was a part of me, when I was out in public especially, if I did something wrong, I was scared. I was scared of what he was going to do. And I think in a similar way, with our relationship with God, we can have the full assurance of knowing that God loves us, that God cares for us. That he's given himself for us. But there's a part of us that should be a little bit weary. That should be a little bit scared. Because we realize who we're dealing with. We realize that the one that we call father is the one who's going to judge the living and the dead. We realize the one who we call father is the one who speaks and nations fall. We realize that the one that we call Father is the one who spoke the worlds into existence. We realize the one we call Father is perfect love and holiness within whom can, there can be no deceit or no sin. And so we recognize who God is it should cause us to be a little bit afraid. Not an overwhelming fear that uh, paralyzes us, but this respect and this worriness that this God is great and this God is mighty and I better not mess with him John Piper puts it this way he says suppose you're exploring an unknown Greenland glacier in the dead of winter He says just as you reach the sheer cliff with a spectacular view of miles of jagged ice and mountains of snow a terrible snow breaks in the wind is so strong that the fear rises in your heart that it might blow you over the cliff But in the midst of the storm, you discover a cleft in the ice where you can hide. Here you feel secure. But even though secure, the awesome might of the storm rages on. And you watch it with a kind of trembling pleasure as it surges out across the distant glaciers. Not everything we call fear vanishes from your heart, only the life-threatening part. There remains the trembling, the awe, the wonder, the feeling that you would never want to tangle with such a storm or be the adversary of such a power. And so it is with God, he says, the fear of God is what is left of the storm when you have a safe place to watch right in the middle of it. Hope turns fear into a trembling and peaceful wonder and fear takes everything trivial out of hope and makes it earnest and profound. The terrors of God make the pleasures of its people intense. The fireside fellowship is all the sweeter when the storm is howling outside the cottage. I think as the people of God, we need to regain that sense of wonder. We need to regain that sense of awe towards God. Because if we just focus on the fact that God is loving and gracious and approachable, that's great, that's wonderful. But he's also the king of the universe. He's also the one to whom we bow a knee. He's the one who appeared before Isaiah, and he, Isaiah cried out, Woe to me, I am an unclean person of unclean lips think we need to regain that wonder because anything incredible, anything awesome, if it's truly mighty, it's also a little bit scary. Think about, say you go on vacation to the Grand Canyon and you go to the Grand Canyon and you see this beautiful creation that God has made that's so massive and so glorious. And if you're like me, if you're going up to the edge of that Of the Grand Canyon, I might take a step back and and, and think to myself, "I don't want to get too close. I don't know how good that guardrail is. I'm afraid of heights, and so I don't want to get too close, even though it's pretty cool and pretty awesome. I want to make sure where where my footing is." Now, most of us might think something like that. Maybe not as much as me, who's afraid of heights, but you might think, "Oh, I better make sure I don't fall off or get too close to the edge." But if that's the case, when you go home, do you go home and tell your friends and loved ones, it was terrible. I was terrified the whole time that I was going to fall into the Grand Canyon. I mean, I could just picture myself rolling down that cliff, and I didn't enjoy the trip at all, because all I could think about is falling down that Grand Canyon, you probably wouldn't think that. You'd probably just come home, and even though there was a hint of fear there, you would say, it was incredible. It was beautiful. I can't believe how gorgeous it was. We serve a God who's incredible, who's mighty, who's holy. And he's so awesome that it's a little bit scary. It's a little bit scary how great and how mighty he is. And we, when we realize how great and how mighty it is, it c- ought to make us just a little bit scared, a little bit apprehensive that he's the one who we get to call on. He's the one that we get to call daddy, the one who created the heavens and the earth. If we don't fear God, we don't know God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you're God who's first of all holy and righteous, that you are coming back as a risen victorious King. We thank you that you're strong enough that there's nothing in our lives that you can't handle, that you can't face. We thank you also, on the other hand, that we can come to you as a child comes to his father, that we can call out to you any time, day or night, that you love us more than we can imagine, that you loved us so much that you sent your son to die on the cross for our sins so that we might have life. Lord, I pray that we would be people who fear you, who live our lives in a healthy respect and fear of who you are, not because we're afraid of what we're going to do, but just by the sheer fact of how great and how glorious you are. And as we do that, Lord, I pray that we would bow our knees and worship you, that we'd give you all the glory, give you all the honor. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.